This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have another great episode for you. We have Michael L. Millinson, an internationally recognized expert on making American healthcare better, safer, and more patient-centered. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Demanding Excellence, Doctors and Accountability in the Information Age. He's the president of Health Quality Advisors, LLC, and he's an adjunct associate professor of medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. As a consultant, Michael's helped conduct strategic planning and to develop tools to improve doctor-patient communication. His clients have included all sectors of healthcare, including advisory roles to a number of healthcare startup companies. In the policy realm, he's authored white papers and testified before Congress and the Federal Trade Commission, and, and his research includes examining patient-centered care practices by ACOs and direct-to-consumer digital diagnostics. Prior to starting his firm, Michael was a principal in the healthcare practice of a major human resources consulting firm. And before that, he's been a healthcare reporter for the Chicago Tribune, where he was nominated three times for a Pulitzer Prize. Well, Race to Value listeners, you're about to hear from someone that is internationally recognized. He's an expert on value-based care, population health, and patient-centered care delivery models. He understands health policy, and he's going to share a whole lot of insights today. Michael, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. You've been a long-term supporter of our work here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value back in the early days of the ACLC, and you were the chair of our patient-centeredness work group. And Daniel and I, uh, before we get started, we just wanted to thank you for the support of our work and uh, extend that appreciation to your work as you continue to make America healthcare better, safer, and more patient-centered. Thank you, uh, Eric and Daniel. It's a pleasure to uh, be on the show and to be involved. And as I uh, hear the title of the podcast, all I can think of is, boy, I hope that race to value is a real race and not the tortoise and the hare. <laughs> well, let's talk about this race to value. We coined the, the name of the podcast based on this imperative that we have to make value work in our country. And over the last few decades, you've really made a name for yourself as a nationally recognized expert on healthcare value transformation. NPR even said at one point you were in the vanguard of the movement when describing your work to measure and improve American medicine. And well, we're definitely in this movement. 
towards data-driven, patient-centered, value-based care, you know, that race to value, if you will. And the implications of this value movement also on health equity is unquestionable now as APMs are now being thought of as a vehicle to minimize racial disparities of care, which are so prevalent in our current fee-for-service system. And as I see it, this is really a once-in-a-generation opportunity to shift the power to the patient, which makes this more of a revolution than just a simple reform of payment models. And the imperatives behind this revolution are multifactorial. You know, you have the encompassing economics, technological disruption, activism from payers, entrepreneurs, and empowered patients. So, Michael, as we start our conversation today, I'd love to hear your views on the future of medicine and how roles, rules, relationships are all going to be reimagined through this lens of value. I mean, this term value-based care creates a lot of confusion in the industry, and we need this shared definition to really succeed in patient-centered care transformation. So I wanted to ask you, what does value-based care really mean? And what are the new rules and expectations of medicine in this emerging era? And given that healthcare is a top-tier political issue, which has now been conflated with social justice and equity and, and consumer sovereignty, what impact does the cultural zeitgeist of this moment have on reshaping our industry? So first of all, I, I've been talking about new roles, new roles and new relationships for quite a while. And when you were talking about the impact of value-based care on equity, it reminded me that really, if you step back with and without the equity question, value-based care is the ethical and clinical right thing to do. End of sentence. And it's the ethically right thing to do because both for economic reasons and simply to treat people right, you want them to get the most value for their hard-earned money, whether it's an individual spending money or someone spending money on behalf of that individual that after all has their own needs for alternative funding. You take money from the government for spending on healthcare, maybe it's not available for education. You just take it from a state government and maybe it's not available to build roads. And of course, clinically, it's the right thing to do because you want the best possible treatment. And so when you add inequity, it, it, it makes it even more compelling. One of the problems with people understanding value-based care is the term value can mean lots of different things. So if I told you I'm getting you a value meal at uh, Denny's, you might be uh, really happy that you're getting a good deal on your money for a, uh, a decent meal at a budget place to eat. But if I then said, well, you know what, I'm getting you a value-based visit to your doctor, you might wonder that what you're getting is cheap care right? Everybody wants best care. No one wants value-based care if you put it to them in, in those terms. And so that's part of the public image that value-based care has to fight as to what it really means. Now, there was a version of this that came out in the late 1980s from Walt McClure at the Center for Policy Studies who talked about buy right. We should just buy things like healthcare from the people who give us the best outcomes and they should get the patients. But you know, in the 1980s, uh, we didn't have cutting edge euphemisms. And so now buy right is way too plain, just like pay for performance. It's just too awkward because it's actually, you know, it's just a, a plain statement and people get uncomfortable with that. And so we use semi-euphemisms like value-based care. And unfortunately, people misunderstand. And so 
in many ways, this is the most important transformation of American medicine in our lifetimes. And let me step back for a moment. What the internet is doing by democratizing information, as some put it, or simply making information more available, whether it's always going to be to the public in terms of democracy or to some others, remains to be seen. It's changing the nature of professionalism in a way that has never been done before. Meantime, value-based payment, where we say we're going to pay based on the results of what you do, is the most significant change in how we pay for healthcare since Hippocrates made his first house call. And when you put those things together, you transform what we pay for, the information we get on what we're getting for that money, and the ability to judge outcomes. This is as transformational to medicine in a social sense, in a cultural sense, in an economic sense, as the invention of the discovery of antibiotics was in a clinical sense. That's how important it is. But it's very difficult for not only members of the public, but really for people within the industry, within medicine to see this. It's easy to look at access, right? It's easy to say, you don't have an insurance card, you're not getting access. That's kind of an easy thing everybody can see. It's easy to look at cost. Look how much this hospital is charging versus how much that hospital is charging. But when you get to quality, which is the essence of why we're here, if I gave you free access to all the medical care you wanted and it was not of a high quality, what am I doing for you? And that's both difficult to measure and difficult to explain. It's difficult psychologically for people to believe that their doctor is not already giving good care. It's difficult psychologically for clinicians who are trying their best to acknowledge that they're not actually following the evidence and that's hurting people. It's difficult for all the other stakeholders. And that makes it difficult politically to say straight out that people are being harmed. It's obvious when people are being harmed when they can't get to the doctor. It's obvious when people are being harmed when they can't afford a medication. It's not obvious when you go to a hospital with a beautiful, gleaming new building. They hand you bottled water when you go in. Everybody is really nice. The place is really clean looking. And yet they're not giving you the care for your cancer that's the best care. They're allowing you to get an infection that you could have been prevented from getting if they'd only followed the best evidence. But they were trying hard, so everything must be okay. And that's the dilemma of value-based care. It is exactly what we as individuals and we as a body politic, given the money we spend on healthcare, need. It's crucial. It's coming. But it is very difficult to explain why we need it to those who do not see the obvious flaws and that's why the race to value often is a zigzag race as opposed to a sprint towards the finish line. But do not make a mistake. It is really the most important transformation of healthcare in generations, whether or not we acknowledge that openly or not. Michael, you framed up this conversation really well. I'm excited to dive into some of these things that you've talked about. 
You you mentioned the political difficulty, you know, and as on the one hand, exacerbating that political difficulty is that how polarized our country is politically. Democrats and Republicans live in separate worlds or echo chambers with each side prone to bias or motivated reasoning. And this has created, we've seen an existential threat of tribalism where partisanship is really turning Americans against one another. And the term that best describes our strife is political sectarianism or the tendency of political groups to align on the basis of moralized identities rather than shared ideas or policy preferences. But we've seen that the value-based care movement does seem to be something we can all agree on in a bipartisan way, despite disagreement on policy mechanics and intense lobbying from entrenched interests that want to perpetuate the status quo of corporatized big medicine. How do we overcome this political tribalism, the entrenched interests in our industry to perpetuate the status quo? And given the recent controversy over direct contracting and and the ongoing debate regarding Medicare Advantage, as a vehicle for patient-centered care and risk-based payment. Is value-based care really a bipartisan issue? You know, there's a small problem with any solution to any problem plaguing America, whether it's healthcare or anything else. Any solution to any problem creates winners and losers. And the winners may not even know they're winners, but the losers sure know they're losers, and they generate a lot of political heat. And so, for instance, if you came up with a plan that would give 99% of Americans access to healthcare at a lower cost, but 1% would be hurt, 1% gives you a lot of people who can appear in the evening news or on television commercials or on uh, social media complaining about how terrible the whole idea is. And so it's very difficult when motivated losers fight back. Value-based care, as we've seen over the last years since the Trump and Biden presidencies, is a bipartisan consensus among mainstream liberals and mainstream conservatives. It is not something that either the far right or the far left looks at with any sort of affection. Uh, There are those on the far right who believe that this is some sort of government plot or that fee-for-service and all the individual doctor-patient economic relationships are the best, even though it's a a huge imbalance of power that essentially gives the seller enormous power over the buyer. And there's those on the far left who see this as some sort of distraction from just universal health care as if giving everybody an insurance card sprinkles magic fairy dust over all the other problems in the healthcare system. And so the the far right and the far left both believe that if you just took their economic solutions, everything else would work itself out, which simply isn't true if you look at the rest of of the world. And and that's, that's a problem to this. When you have mainstream conservatives and liberals in control, they can do a lot of the things to move this forward without much pushback. But particularly when you have social media and some of the other kinds of ways of pushing back hard, and you have suspicion, things that should be benign start to be seen as suspicious. The other thing that, to go back to my first point, you have winners and losers. And you can't expect any hospital or any physician or any drug company, or anybody else selling 
medical products or services to say, you know what? I realize that what I've been doing is low value and I've been earning way more money than I deserve. I'm sorry about that. So uh, sure, let's have a new payment system so that I earn less money because really I don't deserve the money I've been earning. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, what has been a political plus in favor of value-based care is that the leaders of all the different stakeholders, the leaders of the physicians and the hospital industry and the pharmaceutical and device companies and really everybody else, they understand, they know that low value care is prevalent. If you spend any time on the front lines of care, you know that the Institute of Medicine's estimate of 30% waste is spot on. And so all of these leaders know that there's fat in the system and some of it comes from their constituents. And they also know that if we let the system get to a point where it implodes, the solution that a panicky Congress or president might choose could be a radical one. It could be price controls. It could be something else that makes things worse, much worse than a value-based care environment. And so they've supported value-based care, both for practical reasons, because it's better than taking a gamble on what might happen if they don't. And frankly, because whatever cynicism you might have, they know it's the right thing to do. The problem is, is their constituents do not always understand that. And their people are still trying to game the system. So it's, it's a thorny political issue. If people think that they can blow up the system and win, Maybe they'll blow up the system. And I think the, the greatest illustration of how difficult this really is, is surprise medical payments, where you have something that everybody agreed was wrong, was egregious, was in the news, was denounced by politicians. And yet the legislation to fix that problem was very difficult to pass and had some compromises which were not necessarily in the interest of the public. And that's what it took. And that's an easy problem. When you get to the problem of how do you drive out unnecessary care that the individual clinician may think is necessary, but really isn't, how do you give them the incentives to examine their practice? How do you give them the incentives to reach out to people who are not in their office, whose social determinants of health information show that they could use help so they don't end up using medical care. That's not what I was trained for. I'm a doctor, not a social worker. What value-based care does is requires a new way of thinking about the healthcare ecosystem, not just medical care. And that's difficult for a lot of people. It's resisted by a lot of people. And it's not as intuitively obvious a move to kind of sell to the public politically. It is, again, it is the right thing. It is better for people. It is better ethically. It is better clinically. It is better financially, but it's not a great sound bite compared to some of the other easy solution sound bites that people on the left and the right like to sell. That's the reality that we have to acknowledge. 
Well, Michael, I, I wanted to expound upon this idea. You know, we need to use the best evidence. We need to keep our patients safe. We need to transform the value. And as you were speaking, I thought a lot about the importance of patient safety. And, you know, you've been a really big thought leader and, and been outspoken about the need for quality improvement and just how unacceptable it is that our system doesn't have better outcomes, especially for what we spend. You know, it's been well over two decades since that infamous IOM report to Eris Human, which famously declared that anywhere between 44,000 to 98,000 Americans die each year due to preventable mistakes. And yet it seems that the patient safety movement has not materially impacted that death toll. If anything, the safety record is much worse than initially conceived by the IOM with a more recent projection by Johns Hopkins claiming that upwards of 250,000 people in the U.S. die each year. And you reference your book, Demanding Medical Excellence, Doctors and Accountability for the Information Age. And in that book, you state the following, you know, from ulcers to UTIs, tonsils to organ transplants, back pain to breast cancer, asthma to arteriosclerosis. The evidence is irrefutable. Tens of thousands of patients have died or have been injured year after year because of readily available information that hasn't been used and is not being used today to guide their healthcare. And you say, if one counts the lives lost to preventable medical mistakes, the toll reaches in the hundreds of thousands. And in 2003, you wrote a great health affairs piece called The Silence that called out medicine's quiet refusal to take quality improvement actions and how that undermines the moral foundations of medical professionalism. Can you discuss this continued quiet refusal to take quality improvement actions that impact the reality of medical errors? So for, for me, Eric, the central question that has haunted me has to do with that moral basis of medicine. The difficulty in talking about quality of care is that bad things are being done by good people. There are no easy villains making that nurse who has committed medical error stand trial and convicting her of a criminal offense is outrageous. There's very, very few villains. But over a period of time, when a hospital administrator refuses to buy software or products or consulting that could make care safer, or a clinician decides not to really pay much attention to new quality and safety procedures that's come out in the evidence. What do you do about that? When does looking away because you're busy, even though you're trying to do the right thing, become unacceptable? If the head of an airline decided not to buy collision warning systems because he thought that it was an insult to the pilots who work for the airline, who were all highly trained and highly conscientious and obviously did not want to slam their plane into a mountain. And so why are you making me buy this ridiculous equipment? That could never happen because of liability concerns and other kinds of concerns. But I have personally been present at meetings and in conference rooms and talking to individual clinicians, where it has become clear that hospitals sometimes do not do what's necessary to be as safe as possible because there's no return on investment in doing so. When I said in my book, 
tens of thousands. That was in 1997 before the IOM report. And I pulled my punches because I didn't think anybody would believe the real number. I estimated 180,000 preventable deaths in hospitals from medical errors based on my very rough math back in 1997. If you added in deaths and injuries from the lack of evidence-based medicine, it would certainly go to the millions, but nobody would have believed it because where are those people anyway? It's not my doctor. In 2003, I wrote The Silence, quoting Elie Wiesel, because it, it truly hurt me that the IOM had put out a report and the leaders in medicine had not done anything. And in 2010, on the 10 year anniversary of the report, I wrote an article for the Health Affairs blog called Why We Still Kill Patients, Invisibility, Inertia, and Income. And I wrote about the fact that often errors are invisible to those committing them and those who are the victims of the errors. There's inertia because there's lots of priorities. It's difficult to run a hospital. It's difficult to be a doctor. And there's income. And I wrote an article in December 2019 for the Health Affairs blog talking about the business case for patient safety. And quite frankly, this is again invisible to the public. And it doesn't fit into the journalist's narration of good guys and bad guys. So if a for-profit hospital cut corners, that's bad guys. If a hospital hired traveling nurses who weren't well-trained, that's bad guys. Greedy doctors, bad guys. Greedy pharmaceutical companies, bad guys. But a children's hospital, which needs to be persuaded that it's in its economic interest to prevent central line associated bloodstream infections, a central line in the bodies of children who are sick with cancer, and that you should do what's necessary to prevent those infections, that requires making an economic case. That in my entire years in healthcare is the most obscene thing I have ever seen. And yet that's an article in the peer reviewed literature that apparently was needed, that apparently just goes through one way or the other, that nobody raises a fuss about. That's not a moral challenge to us as doctors. No, what's a moral challenge to us as doctors is when insurance companies tell us what to do, or when government tells us what to do, or when someone else is trying to take away our autonomy and replace it with accountability. But the fact that we need an economic case to keep children safe with cancer that's not something that ethicists write about because that's within us. And for me, as I looked at this, when I wrote that article December 2019, I always try to check whether or not I become out of touch with all the good things happening and I'm too cynical. And so I went to the people who are on the front lines that I know. And I said, there are 5,000 hospitals roughly. Do you think 250 hospitals, 5%, are committed to zero preventable harm. And most of the folks I talked to immediately said, no, no more than 5%. Some people said 10%. And one individual as a physician said 30%, but acknowledged he didn't really believe it. And maybe he was being wishful thinking, but it's probably closer to 10 or 15%. If would you fly in an airplane 
if 5% of the pilots, 5% of the airlines were committed to safety? Would we have a military if those were the percentages? Even if you take 15%, is that something to be proud of? If you look at the AHRQ culture survey and you see a greater percentage, so only 40% of people believe that their hospital only cares about safety when there's an incident. Gosh, so a vast majority think they care about it most of the time, 40%. Those numbers should be a moral reckoning. They should be a scandal. They should be a case for looking in the mirror and saying, what are we about? But instead, since we have good people who are trying to keep patients safe, even if they're not doing everything possible to keep patients safe, and since those numbers are not really something that's in the public or political consciousness, it's not a scandal. Now cost, well, that's easy to look at. And cost is important. It's very important. It tells you nothing whatsoever about the quality or the safety of the care that you're getting, except insofar as organizations charging a high price are doing so for one of two reasons. One, they can get away with it. You know, they're the only hospital in town. Or two, they're very prestigious and they're very persuaded that everything they do is the absolute best care possible. And by the way, Lucian Leap, who's at Harvard and one of the pioneers of this movement back in the 1980s wrote recently a book about the history of the patient safety movement. And when he talked about at the end of the book, what hospitals were doing here, he's an eminent physician at Harvard. And he said the same thing I did even more harshly about the lack of commitment to safe care. And when he listed the places that were doing a good job, and there are some places prominent among those missing, although he never said anything explicitly, were the Harvard hospitals. Does that mean that Harvard hospitals are unsafe? No. Does it mean that the ratio of academics at Harvard who know how to keep things safe and the people who run the hospitals actually following what the folks on their faculty say is out of whack? Yes. And so it's discouraging to me because you're trying to keep in mind that the people you know, who are your friends and neighbors, your doctors who take care of you, who you like and trust and are smart, are simply not doing everything necessary. And it's not a scandal, but it is something which hurts people. It is something which costs a lot of money. It is something which is ethically wrong. And value-based care is starting to address that. And it's one of the many pillars that makes value-based care an ethical as well as clinical and financial imperative. But again, it's one of those which is difficult to call out. And I'm disappointed that those physicians who know this, those physicians who see what I'm telling you about because of the strong physician culture against speaking up and speaking out, don't. And the silence that I wrote about in 2003, thinking of Elie Wiesel writing about silence, it's less. We talk about medical error far, far more than we ever used to. It's a public priority in some ways. It's something that the government and others deal with. 
And yet talking about some of the unpleasant realities at the grassroots of care, there's still an enormous silence. I wish that I didn't have to talk about this topic anymore. I wish that the things I wrote in 1997 about safety and quality and evidence-based medicine and the death toll, I wish that that was something that was a piece of history that we had long ago passed. And yet, just like those who write about racism or environmental justice or many other issues in our society, change is very, very slow. I hope, I trust, I pray that some of the transformation we're going through now will in fact cause there to be a true race as opposed to a very slow walk towards resolving these. Michael, you've been talking about another subject over the last few decades, and I've really been impressed with how prescient you've been in predicting the transformative effect of analytics. You know, 20 years ago, we all recognized an opportunity for data-driven healthcare, but unlike you, few of us really understood the implications it would have on the future of quality improvement, safety, and population health management. It reminds me of the scene in the movie, The Graduate, when Benjamin Braddock, that's the character played by Dustin Hoffman, he's told by one of his father's friends, quote, I want to say one word to you, just one word, plastics. Right. And I, and I, and I believe the word these days would be analytics. Exactly. So, <laughs> and in 1967, audiences, they wouldn't have known how enduring the future of plastics would be. And since then, plastics have been the most used material in the United States, and they'll likely continue to be used for so many years to come. And as you said, the, the analogy in healthcare is that we've got this new information ecosystem that will ultimately deliver on this promise of individualized care and precision medicine with analytics as the backbone. And can you speak to the promise of analytics in the future of healthcare? And how will the current care delivery model be disrupted? Once AI, the internet of things, wearables, and new patient interfacing technologies reach critical mass. And finally, what's the opportunity for these new technologies to address workforce shortages by expanding the reach of clinicians? Well, in Demanding Medical Excellence, I wrote of a gathering revolution that owed more to laptops than lab coats. And I was on target about the use of the chips and of analytics, but uh, the technology platform is no longer laptops. Although my laptop does a pretty good job. Uh, but, but what we're talking about is moving to the semantic web. And let me back up. Doctors used to have those mugs that said, uh, don't mistake your Google search for my medical degree. And what they're saying is just because you read something doesn't mean you understand it. And they're absolutely correct. I personally have had many a Google search that I know exactly what's wrong with me, or in one case, what was wrong with my dog, and it matched the symptoms exactly, except I didn't turn out to be correct. But other than that, the Google search was wonderful. But where we're going now with analytics is taking personalized symptoms, personalized medical indicators, not simply your symptoms, not simply saying I have a cough, but the kinds of detailed medical indicators that would be in your medical record. And we can put those through analytics and we can look at what has happened to people like you, what kind of outcomes. And we can start to predict, not with 100% accuracy, certainly, but we can start to predict 
what the best way to treat you is. We are starting to collect, finally, patient-reported outcome measures. And yes, there are issues with all of that. All of this has to be taken with caveats that there's no magic, there's no utopian solution here. But we start to see when you got that hip replacement, the old measure was when you left the hospital, everything seemed fine. And the doctor thinks he did everything right to, can I walk? How long does it take me to walk? Do I have pain when I walk? By the way, if I compare these different hip implants, is one better than another? Does one technique give you a better result? Is one giving me the value for how much it costs? Does this gold-plated surgical scalpel actually do anything better than the one that's made out of stainless steel? We're able to use analytics with AI, but even with normal, quote unquote, computing power to start to see associations between things. That's medicine in the information age. Medicine in the information age back in the early 1990s told us that prophylactic antibiotics given two hours before surgery prevents a lot of post-surgical infections. Information age analytics in the 1990s started to tell us that if this patient has their creatinine going through certain changes, we need to intervene. And yet doctors saw that as an impingement on their autonomy. I want to go back to the airline analogy. If you had a pilot who refused to use an autopilot because no computer is going to tell me what to do, I'm going to fly this 747 the same way I flew the DC-8 and the 727 and the 737 because I've been flying a long time. You wouldn't want to fly with them. On the other hand, if you have a pilot who only relies on the computer, you wouldn't want to fly with him either. And we need a medicine that sees analytics as an extraordinarily important tool. And the doctor can override the analytics, can override the guidelines on one condition. He or she puts down why. And then what happened to the patient? If you believe that the treatment that is predicted to have the best result is wrong because of your patient's individual signs and symptoms, you may be right. Your patient may be different and the guideline is wrong, but document it. Because if you're right, that's how we get medical progress. Or maybe the guideline isn't specific enough and we need to know that. But if you're wrong, there's been preventable harm. It's that simple. It doesn't mean a medical error, quote unquote. It means you didn't do something that could have made the patient better more quickly with less side effects. That's preventable harm. And from a patient point of view, preventable harm or an actual medical error are both things that hurt me, both things that cost me money, both things that affect my quality of life. And they're wrong and we need to eliminate them. And that's how we need to talk about value. Analytics is so important now because it's moving out of laptops or mainframes, if anyone still has one, to my smartphone, which is a universally available device these days in America, almost, and a lot of the rest of the world. And that's pushing the ability to manipulate information down to the individual consumer. And you have companies 
large employers who are doing what's called proactive benefits, meaning they're not just saying, if you get sick, we'll pay your hospital bill. They're saying, here's some information we're going to give you to remain well. Now, go beyond that. Here's some information and tools that we're contracting with that will help you get the best evidence-based care for your cancer at the best institution. And we're going to give you a navigator to help you. Here's information we're giving you that can help you control your diabetes, that can help you find the best treatments when you're feeling like you don't know what your symptoms are and you want a diagnostic and you can't get through to the doctor. These kinds of analytics that we're accustomed to seeing when we choose our movie on Netflix are spreading through healthcare. And they're being backed by both technological progress and by lots of venture capital money. The danger is that we start to think that the computer is infallible, the algorithms are infallible, that algorithms don't have bias. That's the danger. But the opportunity is for us to appreciate what computers can do that the best human minds can't and use analytics to make medicine better, to help physicians practice at the top of their license, to, by the way, deal with the workforce shortage by having one-to-many medicine so that individuals can be at their home and taken care of more easily and not have to go to the doctor's office and not overload doctor's offices and hospitals. So analytics is the key to information age medicine. And some of the leading edge organizations like the Mayo Clinic, for instance, are working on platforms to help it achieve its maximum potential. They're working with Google. What we have to be careful about beneath the rhetoric when we talk about democratization of care is in fact that the golden rule of he who has the gold rules does not apply here. That companies that sell their product to hospitals do not find that the analytics are used to make sure you go to the hospital that bought the product or an employer that uses the product uses it ethically with the workforce, that the diagnostic does not say it's safe to go back to work when it's not safe to go back to work, that biases are taken care of. But that's what we're dealing with with the rest of the world with analytics as well, right? And it's time for healthcare to be transformed. And I, I truly believe that this kind of transformation will make healthcare more ethical. It will make it more efficient. It will make it more effective, safer, patient-centered, equitable, and more timely, just like the Institute of Medicine defined quality back in its 2001 report. It's a good thing, but it's a difficult thing because we as human beings, particularly we as really smart, well-trained human beings in our profession are suspicious that any outside force could be as smart as we are. And yet, let me give you a simple example. The average elderly person who has multiple diseases may be on eight or nine or even 10 medications, particularly somebody who's sick. No human being can track those interactions. No simple app can track those interactions between multiple drugs like I'm talking about. For that, you need AI. For that, you need better algorithms. For that, you need smart analytics. And those are the kinds of things that we can't do as human beings. We can do compassion and empathy and knowing when something just doesn't feel right, but we need to be a partner 
with an analytical world and make healthcare better. And frankly, the more effective for a better workforce, for a more satisfied workforce, that's where we're going. And you know, healthcare has always been suspicious of change. When the idea of having a written down medical record first surfaced in the 1920s, I found the minutes of a, of a meeting of the American College of Surgeons in Chicago in 1924. And the doctors worried, why should I write down what's happening to my patient? Then some other doctor can use that information. And besides, I have it all in my head. So that's when somebody first proposed a written medical record. And of course, as we know, there was resistance to an electronic medical record. And now there's resistance to a analytically based medical record that can be used widely by patients. One last note, there is a federal regulation going into effect in December of this year, which is written in pure tech nerd language and has to do with APIs having access to patient medical records in a FHIR FHIR compliant format. But before you fall asleep, here's what that means. APIs are what are used by apps to communicate. FHIR is an interoperability standard and it has issues, but let's leave that alone for a moment. And what this says is that apps will be able to take the information from individual patient records with their approval and put it into some sort of format that allows analytics to be applied to it. And all that information can be personalized and all that information can be summarized with millions of patients. And all of that is now available in a way that can be sucked out of the basement paper record rooms of the old days of hospitals and put into an analytical format. That's amazing. That has enormous potential. And even though it's not as easy to understand as a surprise medical bill, it will be far, far more transformational. Well, Michael, I wanted to go a little further on this transformation that we're, uh, that we're undergoing with analytics. I mean, you describe the descriptive analytics, which we all know is, which is finding patterns based on past data to predict future events. And then there's this whole other aspect of AI where we, we have data analysis that makes assumptions and aims to make predictions that are beyond the, the human capability, as you stated earlier. And without AI, medicine, as I see it, is never really going to, going to advance to a state where the totality of a patient's data can be used to find predictive signals that will lead to enhanced treatment and population health interventions that improve outcomes. And the potential impact of AI in addressing social determinants of health is enormous. I mean, the National Academy of Medicine estimates that moving upstream to implement interventions that prevent visits to the doctor's office downstream could cut healthcare expenditures by 20%. I mean, that's $800 billion a year, or roughly seven times what the new infrastructure improvement law allocates to fix the nation's roads and bridges. And beyond the cost savings, the impact of AI-guided SDOH interventions could have on improving outcomes in marginalized and underserved communities is profound. And you, you wrote recently in STAT an article on healthcare secret analytics, which basically means means we have, you were referring to the need to build upon clinical data sets through accessing the consumer data that's generated outside of the conventional healthcare system and 
using this data for the public good is going to require us to hold ourselves accountable as an industry to a level of transparency that so far has been markedly absent. Can you speak a little bit about the importance of AI and machine algorithms to address social determinants of health? And and will we get to this point in population health where AI algorithms and advanced analytics are going to be deeply contextualized with these previously hard to obtain or non-existent consumer behavioral, psychosocial, and biometric data? It, it is an area that I've been very concerned about, Eric. I have a, uh, a fantasy about how to bring to the public forefront concerns about secret data that's being used that has to do with our shopping habits, how often we voted, uh, what we eat, where we go, something whereby some of these credit companies, some of the credit uh, brokers, others have hundreds, even thousands of data points on every adult in America. Think about that. Hundreds or thousands of data points on every adult in America. So social determinants of health is not them, it's us, it's all of us. And they're taking that and they're applying algorithms to find those who have certain needs. We don't know what the algorithms are. We don't know the biases. We don't know anything about them, except that the companies that are doing it believe they're helpful, they're selling it. And some of them are companies doing this, have quite a high valuation from private equity or the stock market. And then some of the buyers, such as health plans sometimes, but also provider groups, can then combine this unprotected, no need to disclose that you're doing it data, with actual medical data and then make predictions, which maybe gives us wonderful predictions, but maybe is off some places or maybe is biased some places or maybe misses some people or puts some people in it shouldn't. We don't know. So my fantasy is, is that we collect the data for all 535 members of Congress and we see what it says about that group. And then we publicize that. And we tell them, you know what, we didn't ask your permission, but we didn't have to ask your permission. And you know what, you may not like the fact that this is individually identified data. So we're not going to identify it individually in this press release, but we know who you are. Now, obviously, the companies that have this data would never do that because that would be political and economic suicide, but they could. And that's what I mean when I talk about the secret analytics, is that social determinants of health moving upstream to prevent problems that would affect downstream medical care are extraordinarily important. But agreeing that these factors are important and having the granular knowledge to understand which factors are important in what way are not the same thing. So for instance, if I told you that eating adequate protein is an important thing for your health. You would agree with that. But you would also know that there's an enormous amount of research that talks about protein and fat and carbohydrates and all the rest of that, that talks about what you eat, what it means and all the rest of that. There's research that backs a general concept that says this is important. When it comes to social determinants of health, the PowerPoint version of it is you spend all your time outside the doctor's office. Most health is environmental factors. And, and all of that is true. But if you have a transportation issue, how important is that compared to living in a food desert? How important is that depending on whether you live in a city or a suburb? 
or in a rural area? I don't know. I mean, intuitively, you say, yeah, that's that's important. Let's do something about it. How important is loneliness? What is loneliness? Is it if you don't have relatives? Maybe that makes you happy. Is it if you don't have friends? Well, that's that's something all of us need, but maybe you have relatives, right? And all of these factors are intuitively important, but it's very crucial that when you start throwing things into an algorithm, hundreds and thousands of data points in each one of us, that there be some oversight, whether it comes from the peer-reviewed literature or from the political community, from the policy community, and even worse, there's no disclosure. So we know that large health plans and Medicare Advantage and maybe most health plans are vacuuming up this consumer data. We know that. Some of them have said it publicly. We know that some of the consulting firms are doing this, that some of the healthcare systems are doing this. They've said so. We know this is being used, but it's not being disclosed to the patients or health plan members or members of the public. And simply because something is being done for your own good, well, that's no reason not to disclose. Doctors are doing surgery for your own good too, but they kind of have to tell you what surgery they're doing. They kind of have to tell you the risks and the benefits. They have to. And that's where we need to go on analytics as well. Analytics are wonderful. Analytics of social determinants of health could in fact be way more effective than asking people questions because people don't always answer the questions accurately, either on purpose or not on purpose. But in our society, in our democratic society, in our society which respects individual freedom, to vacuum up information on people who are in Medicare Advantage plans and use it without telling them, and use it so that, by the way, not only can you make their care better, but that so you can make a greater profit as part of the MA plan, that's not right. No matter what your intentions, that's not right. And we need to disclose and we need to investigate what's being done and what works best, just like we do with a medical procedure. Nobody has a secret medical procedure where they say, you know what, I'm doing a heart surgery on you and this is gonna be the best heart surgery, really the best heart surgery that you could possibly get, but I can't really disclose what the procedure is. Just trust me, this is really for your own good. And so as medicine and healthcare and public health and all the rest of the new information ecosystem all start interacting, we need new rules, we need new roles, we need new relationships that take into account the fact that things have changed, that my employer is now doing things that before maybe only a doctor would have done in terms of giving me information, that doctors are doing things that overlap into social work, that pharmaceutical manufacturers and health plans are getting more involved. And we need what I've called collaborative health, not collaborative care, but collaborative health, where we have shared information, shared engagement, and shared accountability, where if I'm using an app that tells me what the best treatment is for my hip that's hurting me, whether I need surgery or not. I share that information with my primary care physician saying, this is the information I'm getting, that the physicians and the others engage with me with what I'm doing if I'm using patients like me or some other peer group. But there also needs to be shared accountability. And that's very politically tough. Shared accountability means if I as a patient have the freedom to kind of do what I want, maybe the consequences 
if I make a bad decision are on me. If I have a consumer have the freedom to go car shopping and I buy the wrong car, nobody bails me out. If I buy a house where the basement floods, nobody bails me out. If I make a bad medical decision, are we going to let people die? No, and we shouldn't. But what accountability are we going to have for bad decisions as well as good decisions? It's a thorny issue because, of course, politicians like to tell voters that only good things will happen. Only good things will happen from the policy I'm, I'm proposing here, whatever the policy might be. And yet there's an upside and a downside to everything. There's an upside and downside to value-based care. But, so let's be honest, but let's have new rules. Let's have new discussions about sharing responsibilities, sharing information, sharing engagement. And again, I think that's going to be better in the long run. I think it's more ethical. I think it's going to be more financially effective. But it's not easy to change cultural patterns. And having secrets about individuals that you're using for their own good to make their care better, and by the way, to make your bottom line better, is not a good thing. And that's what I hope as the world of analytics and value-based care and AI takes over. My hope is that we understand that the old ways are being destroyed but the new ways can be better. They can be renewal. And I've ended many of my talks with that hope by saying the destruction of the old ways may be a source of anxiety, but it should not be a source of despair because destruction often precedes renewal. And it's in that renewal that the future of American medicine lies. And I deeply believe that. Michael, as we uh, finish up our conversation today, I wanted to talk a little bit further about this collaborative health model. And, you know, I'm thinking a lot about the, the current asymmetry that we have in, in, in information right now in the healthcare system. I mean, for consumers of healthcare to make informed decisions, we really need to have this trust-based ecosystem for healthcare, and we have to overcome this information asymmetry between patients and physicians. Generally, the better the data, the better the decision. However, patients need to be able to understand and this complex information uh, to make informed decisions as a consumer. And you know that means more clarity, more transparency. You talked about that earlier, you know, in the your discussion. But you know, I'm just thinking about where this lies in terms of the definition of traditional professionalism. And you know, there's a definition of that which which means in Western medicine, where you have this, the possession of a monopoly over a body of knowledge that's relatively inaccessible to lay people. But in value-based care, you know, you have these powerful incentives that now exist that could subordinate the sense of traditional professionalism, which will require us to overcome some of the resistance to having a free flow of information. And we have to think about health literacy and translating that information for patients. We have to overcome maybe some of the deeply entrenched self-interests of the profession, which often drift us at times towards this dominance of having a guild self-interest, which overcomes professionalism at times and it may undermine the profession. So, you know, as we wrap up our conversation today, I just wanted to get your parting thoughts on, you know, how does this relationship of trust with the doctor evolve as the world of healthcare becomes more transparent in terms of cost and quality, you know, information, which has traditionally been limited only to those medical insiders. And, you know, what kind of information do you expect consumers to have in regard to their health so that we can truly have this collaborative health model of care? 
I believe that the physician is still the center of the healthcare system, that wherever else you get information from, whatever else happens, when you are really sick, you need a doctor. That doesn't mean that a lot of what doctors do now can't be done in different ways, more efficient ways, without requiring the doctor's intervention, or that we don't use too many specialists or too many visits. All of that's true. But I think if you start off and you say, the doctor's knowledge and judgment form the heart of healthcare, how are we going to preserve that with all the other factors that are changing the traditional monopoly, are changing the traditional fear and respect the doctors have gotten, that are bringing in all these other actors from my employer contracting with a vendor that gives me medical information to Best Buy, having a company that it bought that will put sensors in grandma's apartment. And if she gets up too much in the middle of the night, the algorithm says she has a urinary tract infection and it calls a nurse who's not her nurse, it's the company's nurse. How are we gonna deal with all that? And I think that if we move towards a collaborative health model, it says two things. First of all, under fee-for-service, doctors don't make any money for health. They only make money from sick people. It says we're interested in health. Second of all, it says we're interested in collaboration, which means mutual respect. It means that we understand that one of us having information is not a threat to the other. It's something that we share. That's why we need the radical transparency. And it's built on safe care first and foremost. It's built on using the evidence in a thoughtful way. It's built on listening. You know, Children's Hospital in Cincinnati had a experimental grant funded, but a long running program which parents of very sick children took responsibility for working with each other and for making the care better. And it worked. Now, people say children's hospitals, it's parents, they care a lot, the average person doesn't. And maybe that's all true. But it says that if you have an engaged community of patients in a respectful way, in a way that also doesn't take too much time away, that you have non-physicians working and doing it as a community, you can make health better. You can make medical care better. That's where we need to go. And I'm afraid sometimes that when we have an obvious and necessary focus on economics, we lose track of trust and quality of care. That when we talk about access nonstop, which is understandable, especially in the pandemic, we lose track of what happens to quality of care. And I think that focusing on the relationship, on trust, is a way that allows us to put aside for a moment access and cost and say, okay, we're in the room together. We got here, insurance card, whatever. We got here, we drove, we were taken by an Uber because our health plan knew we were lonely, whatever. We're here now. What's the relationship and how do we have that relationship in a way that is satisfying for clinicians so they're not burned out, that's satisfying for the patient so our experience of care is less stressful, that's respectful of the infrastructure of hospitals and of all the other stakeholders. And we're not there yet. We're still having the old arguments. We're still having the old accusations. But I'd like us to get to a place 
where collaborative health is where we're all trying to go. Because the enemy is not each other. The enemy is disease. Well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for joining us. And I mean, this has been such a intellectual conversation. You know, your thought leadership is so needed in this industry as we look to make these important seismic shifts and transforming our care delivery model. And it really is a revolution underway. And, and your voice in that is so important here at the Race to Value and the Institute for Advancing Health Value. We just wanted to thank you for, for your continued contribution to our industry. And, and we appreciate you spending time with us on the podcast this week. My pleasure, Eric. 